John chapter 12, we touched on this just briefly last week, but I want to make sure we understand what's happening in the context of John's gospel as we get to John chapter 12, verse 1. John chapter 12 can be described as the beginning of the end. We are now on our way to the cross. It takes us to the Passover. That's how John opens up the chapter. It takes us to Christ's crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his conversation with his disciples after he has risen from the dead. But that's the path that we are on now inside of John's gospel. As this chapter opens up, we're in this last week before the cross itself, what the church often calls the Passion Week. It takes up almost an entire half of John's gospel. So John believes that what happens here, the conversations that Jesus has with his disciples, with us, they are extremely important for us to hear and understand as we make our way to the cross. Part of what we saw in the passage of Scripture last week is how Jesus' enemies were preparing for the cross. And we saw their perspective on these things. They were actually beginning to conspire to kill Jesus, and this is the conspiracy that works. They managed to get Jesus to the cross and crucified. But for them, the death of Jesus was the answer to their problems. They believed that if we could kill Jesus and get him out of the way, we will maintain our power and we will maintain our influence. The man who was high priest at the time, Caiaphas, he actually counsels execution. They didn't know what to do. He says, here's what we need to do. Kill one man instead of cause trouble for the rest of the entire nation. But what he did unknowingly is tell us why Jesus had to die. That's part of what we saw in our passage of Scripture last week. Today, we're going to watch as Christ's disciples prepare for the cross. It's a very different story, very different set of things. One of the scenes that we're going to deal with today happens in a circle of friends. It's a group of friends, it's a group of disciples, it's inside of one house, it's an intimate moment. And in that moment, this woman that we learned of in chapter 11, Mary, is going to do something extraordinary in preparing Jesus Christ for his burial, for his cross. The other scene that we're going to deal with this morning happens on a much larger scale, and this is a God-arranged moment. It's the triumphal entry as Jesus enters into Jerusalem in fact, it is such a big deal that the gospel seed is part of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy itself. And a gospel that does not refer to a lot of Old Testament prophecy has to at this moment and reminds us that we have been told that this moment is going to happen. But it's also an act of worship. The crowd recognizes Jesus Christ as the King of Israel who's coming into the capital city of Jerusalem. This morning as we talk about the followers of Jesus Christ preparing for the cross, what we end up talking about more than anything else is worship. So that's what we're going to pay attention to this morning. The first step in this two-step story this morning is this. Jesus is worthy of all our worship. He's worthy of all of our worship. To worship someone or something is to act as if they are worthy of praise or adoration. There is this much worth in them, and I give them worship. So worship someone is to act as if, to behave as if, as if to sing as if, to live as if that person is worthy of praise and adoration. 
And the act of worship in this passage of Scripture is so extravagant, it actually provokes a pushback from one of the other disciples who were there inside of the room. But Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. And then we also learn that Jesus is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The triumphal entry is this incredible point in time. Jesus has actually avoided being openly recognized as king in Jerusalem. But at this point, he arranges it. This is a God-arranged moment, and it is unique. So the crowd actually worships Jesus as king, and the disciples begin to learn things about Jesus and who he is. So let's start reading our passage of Scripture in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The story goes like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, and this is the same Mary, uh, Martha, and Lazarus in chapter, as in chapter 11. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed to the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Uh, Excuse me, for the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. An amazing little scene that we have between Jesus, Mary, and Martha, and Judas. John opens up this passage of Scripture by saying six days before the Passover. So John dates this moment for us because the timing is significant. It really is important in the life of Jesus Christ and for us to understand The Passover itself, it is this moment in the annual calendar of the Jewish nation where they remember God freeing them from Egypt. This is the moment in which the exodus begins in the Old Testament. So for centuries, the Jewish nation has been remembering this moment has been going through the sacrificial process, been going through the community process of worship to remember the power of God that freed them from slavery in Egypt. This is that Passover. You can read that original story in Exodus chapter 12, the very first Passover. God told his people that they were to sacrifice and prepare a lamb. They were going to eat all of the lamb, and they were going to take the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorposts around their house so that when the angel of death, the final plague that God lays upon Egypt, when the angel of death passes over the land, when he comes by your house and he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will pass over your house, and no one in your home and no one in your flocks is going to die. So the blood of the lamb covers them from that moment. That happens in Exodus chapter 12. Then later on in Leviticus chapter 23, it marks the Passover as this annual reminder 
for the people of God. We're going to remember the Passover. We're going to come together. We're going to sacrifice the lamb that reminds us of God passing over us, of God freeing us from slavery in the land of Egypt. So the Passover lamb represents God's power to free his people from slavery. Now, on Passover weekend, another lamb will be slain, and Jesus Christ will die on the cross as our Passover lamb. So that when that Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, dies, it represents, or it actually is, God's power to free his people from sin and death. So the timing is important. The celebration of the Passover is important. The preparation the people of God have for this moment is important so that we know what Jesus is actually doing for us in his sacrifice, his death upon the cross. So John prepares us for this moment in the calendar. Then he tells us that Jesus is with Lazarus and the sisters again. The friends and the disciples are eating this meal together. And then Mary does something really interesting. So Mary, therefore, the text says, takes this pound. It is roughly a liter of pure nard. If you have an older translation, it says spike nard. That's kind of one of the, the, the formal names of the kind of perfume that Mary has. And she opens up this bottle, probably a bottle she had to break open because this is not something that you use very often. And she pours out and anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, from one point of view, almost everything is wrong with that scene. The feet of the guests in your home are washed with water, not with perfume. The job of washing feet was the job of the servant in the house, not the matriarch of the home, who was probably what Mary is. Jewish women did not let down their hair in public, but she does, and she uses it to actually wipe and clean the feet of Jesus. She wipes his feet with her hair. And Mary uses this expensive item in their home. It's probably a family heirloom. It's probably the most expensive thing inside of their house. And she just pours it out on the feet of Jesus. This pure nard, this spike nard, it's our perfume that we know. It's actually crafted from a plant that grows in India. And if you can imagine how rare that might be, in ancient, in early Jerusalem and Judea, this thing that is derived from a plant in India, that's what she has in her home, and that's what she uses to anoint the feet of Jesus. And I love this little detail. John throws in these almost cinematic details from time to time. He says she anoints his feet, she wipes his feet with her hair, and the entire house is filled with the fragrance this perfume. The entire house is filled with the smell of worship. It's filled with the smell of the preparation for the burial and the death of Jesus Christ. But thankfully, Judas is here to make sure that we know that everything is wrong with this scene. Thankfully, Judas lets us know. At least that's what he wants everyone else in the rest of the room to think. When Mary pours out her most precious possession on Jesus, Judas complains that Jesus is not worth it. That's what his complaint is. At least that's what the complaint is on the surface. He's not worth that. 
The best thing you can do with that is sell it, take the money, give it to me. I'll distribute it to the poor. As Heather and I were talking about this, she made a couple of interesting comments. There are a few of these moments in Scripture where an act of worship, an extravagant act of worship, provokes polar opposite reactions to the moment. Cain and Abel, David and Michael, and Mary and Judas. She pours out everything she has, and Judas says, you can't do that to Jesus. You need to do something else with your money and with what you have. Judas is saying, what you have just done, you've poured this out and the floor, soaks it up. He says, this is a waste. In truth, however, and John the Gospel writer lets us in on something that apparently he and the disciples kind of know is already going on. He didn't say this because he cared for the poor. He said this because he was a thief. And the thief was holding the disciples' money bag. And he used to just kind of help himself out of it whenever he wanted to. So he's thinking, if I have 300 denarii in my pocket, what else can I do with this? So that's what Judas is doing in truth. It strikes me that what Judas is doing here is virtue signaling. He's trying to make himself look good in public while being a thief in private. He wants everyone else in the room to think, I'm thinking of other people, when in fact he's just thinking about himself. We use that phrase from time to time, virtue signaling. When we virtue signal, we don't actually have to be moral. We just need to convince someone else that we are actually being moral. Then we can be as rotten or as selfish as we want to be. That's what virtue signaling is. It's the moral engine of our culture right now. That's why so many people feel like there's something shallow and broken and hollow about our culture. We're convincing everyone else that we're moral because we post the right things, we say the right things, but we don't have morality moving and changing and transforming inside of our own lives. So Judas says, look, we're going to think about the poor here. Jesus isn't worth it. Some other activity is actually worth it. So from one point of view, what happens in this story is just wrong. Everything about it is wrong. But what makes everything about this story right is Jesus. That's what makes everything about this story right. Listen, friends, this is important. What Mary does is an extravagant act of worship. And when Judas complains, Jesus says, leave her alone. She did the right thing thing. She's actually preparing for my burial and crucifixion. It may seem that she has wasted something expensive when, in fact, there was nothing better she could have done with that than to worship Jesus with it and to anoint Jesus with it. He knows Judas's heart, and Jesus is not saying that, well, we don't take care of the poor. What Jesus is saying is that this extravagant act of worship in this moment, this is important, what she did was absolutely right. Now, Mary has done something like this in the recent past because traditionally when someone dies in a home, when a family member dies in a home, the rest of those family members and those friends, in preparation for burial, they actually anoint and wash that body. 
And what she does is, is a symbolic act of washing and anointing the body of Jesus Christ before his death, preparing for his burial. This moment should be the kind of moment that begins to open their eyes to what's coming, that opens our eyes to what's coming and how important Jesus is. It should open our eyes to the weight of what's going to happen on the cross. Judas is just greedy, but Mary knows what's going on. Judas wanted to feed his vice. Mary wanted to spend all that she had on Jesus. Mary wanted to give, and Judas wanted to take. There's an interesting question buried inside of this story. What is my reaction to the cross of Jesus Christ? What does it pull out of me? How does it make me respond to Jesus? How does it make me respond to those who follow their Savior to the cross? The cross of Jesus Christ is so powerful a moment, it pulls these reactions out of us. It forces us to play our hand and reveal what is important to us. Jesus is going to say things like this to his disciples. He says something similar in just the verses to come, actually. If you're going to follow me, you need to pray for a blessing and get as much stuff as you possibly can and wear expensive clothes. If you're going to follow me, you're going to pick up your cross, you're going to deny yourself, and you're going to follow me. That's this moment. That's this moment. He's being prepared for his burial, and we have Mary's reaction to that, and we have Judas's reaction to that. The cross provokes in this moment devotion or antagonism. Isn't that interesting? And it's still the case today with many who are angry at the Christian faith, skeptical of the Christian faith, have questions about the Christian faith. They look at the cross of Jesus Christ as nothing but divine child abuse. It provokes antagonism. And the followers of Jesus Christ, as we prepare for the cross, it provokes our devotion and it provokes our worship. So Mary is teaching us that Jesus is worthy of every act of devotion that I have, no matter how much it costs me. No gift or sacrifice of worship can outdo the honor that Christ is due. No act of worship or sacrifice can outdo the honor that Christ is due. We cannot say to Christ, you're great, but not that great. We can't say that. The psalmist actually says things like, you are so great that you're so great, I can't say any more about this, but you're so great. You are beyond my ability to express your greatness. That's our reaction to Jesus Christ. This wonderful little book by the Puritan George Swinnick. When you were a Puritan, you could get away with titles of books like The Incomparableness of God. I probably wouldn't pass editors today, but it's a great little book. Here's part of what he says about the incomparable nature of God. If God be an incomparable God, then incomparable service and worship is due to Him. Should not the vastness of His perfections provoke you to awe in your worship? 
If he is incompare, no one can be compared to God. Then our worship of God should not be comparable to our worship of anything else. God requires the best of his people. You see, God knows this to be true. And God builds this into our relationship with him. So throughout the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, when you bring a sacrifice to God, it is a lamb without blemish and without spot because you're bringing your best to God. And that sacrificial system is tied hand in hand with their act of worship to who God is. So the spotless lamb, the, the lamb without blemish, without spot, is their best that they bring to God. And then it speaks of the lamb himself who is without spot and without blemish. So God says, that's the kind of sacrifice that I am due. This is the glory and holiness of God revealing himself to us and telling us, this is what I am due from you. And so God takes note when we offer subpar worship. Now, this is interesting. It's buried in a little Old Testament book. That you probably haven't read it in a long time, but you should. It's a short Old Testament book. The book of Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament. It's this glorious little conversation between God and his people. And that's how the prophet Malachi structures that entire little book, our conversations. God says, you've done this. And the people of God said, well, how have we done this? God says, well, here's how you have done this. It's this great set of back and forth. And here's part of what happens right at the beginning of that book. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And listen to how God puts this to his people. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If, them, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table, the altar, the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? You wouldn't dare do that to your political rulers. Then they would know that you don't honor them. But you do it to me all day long. You give me the worst that you have. You give me the broken. You give me the lame. You give me the stuff you wouldn't even give to people you don't like. How have we polluted you? You haven't given me all that I am due. If I offer God less than my best, then I consider someone else worth more than him, and I demean the character of God. And that person that I tend to think is worth more than God is usually me. But Mary's point of view, Mary's act of worship, is here to change our perspective, to open our eyes to what Jesus is worth. Her point of view is the psalmist's point of view. Her point of view can be, should be our point of view with God. 
The Psalms are full of this kind of thing, but listen to Psalm 96, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. There is no one, nothing else that is to be feared or honored or worshipped above him. This is what Mary is teaching us. This is what the opposite, the polar opposite, Judas, helps us see how he demeans the worship of Jesus Christ for his own selfish purposes, how Mary takes the most expensive and valuable thing she has and does the best thing she can with it. She gives it to Jesus. She worships him with it. So we have this astounding act of worship that prepares Jesus for the cross. We get this moment now with the Pharisees between these two acts of worship. I want to listen to this. John chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him. So Jesus is now in the city of Jerusalem, coming toward the city of Jerusalem. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Who wouldn't want to see the guy who was raised from the dead? Coming to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus, and we just cannot let that happen. So while Mary is preparing Jesus for his crucifixion and burial, Judas is preparing his heart to betray Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are really worried about the number of people who are starting to follow Jesus Christ. So they've already started the plot to kill Jesus. Now they begin the plot to kill Lazarus, as if Jesus can't fix that, right? We learned that in the last chapter. You kill someone, Jesus can actually bring them back from the dead. <laughs> but it is again astounding to me, and this is, a, this is an important set of realities that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear. They think that getting rid of Jesus will fix their problems. They think that getting rid of the evidence of his power will make people forget Jesus. They think that murdering the man that Jesus raised from the dead will leave them in power. But Jesus isn't going anywhere. In fact, Jesus will rise from the dead. His children cannot be silenced or eliminated. Can I say that again? The children of God, the church of Jesus Christ, over time, as we remain faithful to Jesus, no matter what the plot is against the church, the church of Jesus Christ cannot be eliminated and it cannot be silenced. If they kill Lazarus, Mary and Martha speak. If they kill Lazarus, Lazarus will rise again to be with his Savior forever. And things are about to get worse for the Pharisees. The grumpy are about to get grumpier. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, so we're making our way day by day, step by step, into Jerusalem 
and toward the cross. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast and were here for the Passover heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that he had done them. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, they are, that um, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We're not sure that our plot is going to work. The next day, this crowd gathers they lie in the street, and they've got these palm branches that they're waving. And Jesus is seated on a young donkey. And he begins to ride his way into the city of Jerusalem. And the crowds begin to shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What a moment. This is a fascinating moment. The other Gospels spend a little bit more time on some of the surrounding details, including the frustration of the Pharisees. They're there as well, and they pull the disciples aside and say, do you realize what's happening? He's being praised as the Messiah. And in that conversation, Jesus says, look, if these people weren't here doing it, the rocks and the earth itself would cry these things out. I am king. And it doesn't matter who you think you're going to stop, I will be declared as king. This moment will happen, no matter what any man or woman thinks of it. And everything about this speaks to Jesus the king. The palm branches, recognizing him as authority, as deity, as the king himself. This word, Hosanna, that they speak over and over again. That's the word in the, the, the language itself that, that gets pulled right out of that Greek. Hosanna, it means save us. In fact, that word can be taken as a prayer in and of itself. Save us, we pray. So the crowd is crying to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, save us, save us. There's absolutely no question here who Jesus is and what's going on. There's no question. This is not a parable that some understand and some don't. This is not a sign that some interpret correctly and some interpret incorrectly. This is not a teaching that some understand and others do not. This is Jesus entering Jerusalem as Lord. He is the King of Israel. And at the beginning of the Passion we start on this note of worship, recognizing who Jesus is and worshiping him for who he is. So the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ, prepare for the cross 
We've got to make sure we put these two things together because these things are not normally put together, or when they are, we don't always understand the impact of it. We're preparing for the death of Jesus Christ by declaring him as King of kings and Lord of lords. This is how we are making our way to the cross itself. Again, the Psalms are full of adoration of God as King. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. And it goes on and on. This is you and your majesty and glory and power. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And John makes sure we understand, and he says later on the disciples got it. So he sticks it in his, his gospel for us. This fulfills an Old Testament promise of the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah into the city of Jerusalem. He quotes from the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And that one particular verse says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's exactly what the people are doing. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'd encourage you to go and read the rest of that passage in Zechariah chapter 9, because then what it speaks of is what this Messiah brings is peace. He's putting everything together that's broken. Everything that is violent and unjust, the king of peace will fix. So rejoice, people of God. Your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. This moment is the promise of the peace, the kind of peace that will come because of the Messiah. That is where, in the end of all things, we are headed. That is the kind of thing that you and I now, as the children of God, can actually taste. In Philippians chapter 4, it's, it's language that has always struck me. When Paul says, may the peace of Christ keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and it's the kind of peace he says in that passage that passes all understanding. Looking at this from human eyes, we would believe that there's no place we can find peace or rest. But thankfully, the peace of Jesus Christ passes all of that understanding. And he rides in on a donkey near the city of Jerusalem. And that donkey is part of the symbology, the, the symbol of the king coming to bring peace, to bring salvation, Zechariah says. This is the first time that Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. There is a second time that Jesus will come, and when he sets foot outside of the city of Jerusalem, he comes this time on a horse, a horse of war and a horse that brings justice and finality to evil itself. Listen to this second moment in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. It says this, Then I saw, and this is the same John, by the way, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, 
is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. John opens his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the conquering king, is coming back to set everything right. And he's coming with his church. It has been said, and I think this is true, may the world see Jesus in his church before the world sees Jesus with his church. This is part of our call. This is part of why we are here now. That the world will see Jesus in us. Be saved and find brand new life. And John tells us his disciples didn't understand all of this at first. And he's including himself. He's not saying, well, you know, Peter's a little slow. So later on he got it. The disciples didn't put all of this together at first. I think it's a really important thing for John to say at a moment like this. Because this is an absolutely unique moment. If you trace the life of Jesus through the rest of the Gospels and through the Gospel of John, there are these moments where Jesus actually avoids this kind of thing. He avoids being publicly proclaimed as king to everybody, everywhere, all the time. He avoids those moments. He avoids the city of Jerusalem when he knows the Pharisees are plotting to kill him because the time is not yet and Christ is in control of the time. But now is the time. So this is utterly unique in the life of Jesus and his disciples so far. And it is a complicated moment. Jesus has told his disciples, the other gospels tell us this, he's told them, I am on my way to Jerusalem to die at the hands of evil men. He's on his way to the cross. But as he goes into the city of Jerusalem, the crowd hails him as king, like a conquering hero. That's how Jesus walks into the city of Jerusalem. But John tells us that the disciples put all of this together after he had been glorified. Now, this is language that Jesus begins to use now during the rest of the Passion Week. In just a few more verses, Christ is going to say, the moment of my glory is at hand. So when John and the disciples here speak of his glorification, they speak, yes, of his resurrection and his ascension, but they speak also of the cross. This is part of the glory of Christ. This is part of the glory of the plan of God. And it is all of these pieces that are put together that make sense of our Messiah, that make sense of who Jesus is. Mary worships him in a manner that prepares him for death and burial. The crowds outside the city of Jerusalem as he walks in, they worship him as king of kings and as lord of lords, preparing for his resurrection and his glory. Those are the things that we have seen making our way through these first two days of the Passion Week. So Jesus is the Passover lamb. He will die for our sins. His blood will cover us. He is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. We sang that this morning. 
When the moment came and the tomb was opened and he came out roaring like a lion. I love it. He's the Passover lamb and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. And he is the king of kings who will reign for all of eternity in perfect holiness and justice. This is who Jesus is. Of course his disciples didn't understand it until finally all these pieces came together. (laughs) So the cross. This moment of death that actually frightens most of the disciples, sends them into hiding. The cross does not hinder our worship. It doesn't tarnish the worthiness of God. The cross is not a flaw in the plan. It is the linchpin of the plan. And it is part of the glory of God. And you and I now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we now, day after day, and step after step, we follow Jesus through this week, all the way to the cross, and then all the way to the other side, to His resurrection. This is how a follower of Jesus Christ prepares for the cross. Something new is entering the world in Jesus Christ. God in flesh does power differently. He transforms lives. He saves lives, not through brute force, but through the cross and through the resurrection. This is how Christ is at work now inside of us. This is how the Holy Spirit is at work now in us. It's interesting to me that in this last week and in these long teachings that we get between Jesus and his disciples is when Jesus begins to explain this is the role of the Holy Spirit and he's going to constantly point you people back to me. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will be with you. It's beautiful stuff. Well, friends, we need to make sure we see this. The more we learn how great God is, the more we are motivated to worship. We are provoked to worship. We are compelled to worship. The more we know God, the more we understand God, the more we actually come into contact with the truth of who He is, the more we recognize how much He is worthy. He is above all things. He is the creator of all things, and nothing else deserves praise. So understanding the incomparable glory and power of God How much more amazing is it that he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and he goes to a cross and he dies for you and me. So we need to let the cross, as we prepare for it, going through the Gospel of John, we need to let the cross become this motivation for worship and adoration inside of our lives. Follow him to the cross and then out the other side of the tomb to his resurrection and to life evermore.